Well, this morning is our, our second out of four Sundays in the book of Jude. We said last week that this is the last epistle in the New Testament. It's an often overlooked book. It is a book that is hard to get when you just go through it the first time. It's hard to understand, feels a little bit like it's all knotted up. And so this morning we're going to do our best to try to untangle and, and smooth out and understand. And this morning our our text, if you want to open to it, is Jude verse 8 through 16. And we, we want to do a little review looking back and, and, and being reminded of the call that we received last week to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints and the warning we received against creeps. Against creeps. Do you remember that warning last week? The warning to beware of creeps? My, my children sometimes refer to individuals as creeps or creepers. Not always the best choice, probably. But here in Jude, he says, beware of those who creep in, which would make them creeps, right? And so we want to think about what is this one that he is warning us, because it is a very serious matter, whatever you call them, whether you call them certain people or these people or these, and you will hear that phrase repeated over and over and over again. But I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And I'm going to read verses 3 and 4 by way of reminder, and then I will read our text, which is verse 8 through 16. Hear the Word of the Lord. Beloved Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, Yet in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Christ. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. May God bless the reading of His Word. This might be a great text for your wedding if you're getting married coming up. <laughs> Maybe your child's graduation party. It's heavy, isn't it? It's, uh, and, and, and as I promised, there's a lot there. 
a lot to sort out and figure out. But the, the thing that's going to help us interpret, help us, help us trace the argument through it, is to keep verse 3 and 4 in our minds. So go back to 3 and 4. And if you don't have your Bible in front of you, please get a pew Bible from right in front of you. Pull it out, open it up. Again, the second to the last book, the 65th book of the Bible. Go all the way to the end, right before Revelation. Here's where we're at. But it's going to be almost impossible to follow unless you have your Bible open. And as I said last week, Jude has arrows pointing in all kinds of different directions from the Bible and lots of biblical allusions. And then he's pulling things from outside the Bible as well. And so we're going to try to keep it all straight. And the way that's going to help do that is to look at 3 and 4 and keep that in our mind. Remember Jude said, Jude, this one who we saw last week, is the brother of James, also the brother of Jesus. But he didn't refer to himself as the brother of Jesus. He referred himself to himself as the slave of Christ, the doulos of Christ. And he said, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation in verse 3. But I found it necessary to write to you on another matter. What was that matter? To appeal to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Be on guard, he said. Contend for the faith. Fight for it. Why? Verse 4. Who are we to watch out for? Who are the ones I called creeps? For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, you can mark that word, ungodly, we're going to see it a lot, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Now just pause for a moment. We come together as a people that haven't done it all right. We come together as a people who have sinned and continue to sin. Everyone in this room broken. The only hope we have, friends, is the grace of God. That God, in His kindness, shows mercy on sinners. He gives Christ the perfect substitute for all those who would trust in Him. That is the grace of God. That is the gospel. That is the message of the cross. Amen? Now these people take this gospel message and they pervert it. They twist it for nefarious purposes, for underhanded purposes. And that is what verse 4 is taking, saying. They pervert the grace of God. They pervert the message of the cross. They're taking these words of grace, and instead they use them as a cover for sensuality, for different forms of sexual immorality. And they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They undercut His authority. Oh yeah, Jesus isn't really Master. Jesus isn't really Lord. Jesus isn't really authority. They deny the Lordship of Christ. They deny His rule. They deny His authority over sexuality. They deny His authority over ethics. They deny His authority over the church. They deny His authority over their own lives. That's what these people do. Okay? So that's really important. That helps us understand the whole rest of the argument. So in verse 8, he says, Yet in, in, like, in like manner, these people... And he's about to unpack who these people are. Now, before we dig in, you might say, Pastor, is this really necessary? Does this really happen that often? Is this really a big deal? Well, friends, I'm here to tell you this is a huge deal, and it is happening constantly. Two years ago, a pastor of a 25,000-member church, very well-known, consorting with presidents, was found to have enticed and abused a series of fatherless teenage boys over the course of years and decades. And you go, how could this happen? That's what Jude's talking about. This summer, a historically evangelical church, less than two miles from us, decided that the Bible was no longer their authority. And they had to come into line 
with culture. And they were the first church kicked out of a faithful denomination a few less than two miles from us. Is this a big deal? Well, this summer, a pastor who was heard for years on good Bible radio stations, who is overseeing a huge church planting network that planted churches all over the country, including in the Twin Cities, who was part of the Gospel Coalition, who was part of the Southern Baptist Convention, preached multiple times at the Southern Baptist Convention Pastors Conference, was fired for a long list of offenses. He received millions of dollars a year in compensation, and yet he had led his church into tens of millions of dollars of debt. Now you say, Pastor, what are the names? Well, I would be happy to give them to you. I thought about giving them to you. The reason I'm not is because every time you do a Google search and study the 50 pages of each one, another one pops up and another one pops up. And the work is not to figure out each name in each situation. The work is to understand the anatomy of who this kind of person is and what the blueprint of the pattern of one who creeps is. And so we want to look into God's Word and see how it describes these people. These are people who creep into churches, and there will be some who creep into this church. These are people who creep into schools and Christian organizations, some of which you work for, who pervert the grace of God and deny the Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. And so we must work hard to understand. So, verse 8, these people, three actions. Yet in like manner, these people also, first phrase, relying on their dreams. Relying on their dreams. So right out of the gate, these people are those people who reference their dreams. We know the famous sermon, I had a dream. Not what it's talking about. It's, it's Christian leaders who get up and said, I had a dream about this. I had a dream about that. I think we should do this. God is telling me in a dream to do this or that. That's the first mark of these people, referencing their dreams frequently. This is similar language to 2 Peter. In fact, 2 Peter and Jude have all kinds of correlation. It's likely that Jude and Peter were co-laborers, and so there's a lot, especially in 2 Peter 2 and Jude, that are very, very similar. And in 2 Peter, Peter says there's a lot of talk about dreams. Sometimes there's a strong appeal to emotions. He said we must pay much more careful attention to the Word of God that we receive. He, Peter says in 2 Peter, it's better, it's a more sure word than the word given at the Mount of Transfiguration. But these people, they don't have time to give careful study to the Word. Instead, they are relying on dreams. Not only are they relying on dreams, they defile the flesh. What does it mean to defile the flesh? It means to make the pure impure. And they defile the flesh in their own lives and bodies and in their ministries. People over and over experience the defiling of the flesh. The pure is made impure. We think of how many scandals are there where this is happening, the defiling of the flesh. He continues, they rely on dreams, they defile the flesh, and they reject authority. Note those two words right there. These people, these creeps, they reject authority. Now this is a thread that runs through the whole book. They reject authority. These are people that aren't answerable to anybody. These are churches that aren't going to answer to anybody when these people take over the churches and they become these churches. They're going to do what they want because why? Well, I had a dream. God told me to do it. I don't need the Word of God. I don't need other people in my life. So I'm going to do what I'm going to do. He is describing what these people look like. He is giving the blueprint. They rely on dreams, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and last phrase in verse 8, they blaspheme the glorious ones. So 
Another version it's read, they slander righteous ones. Little confusion about this phrase, what exactly he's speaking of here. But clearly they are in some way uh, stepping out of turn. Now, verse 10 builds on, on, on this a little bit. Now, now here's where, he, or verse 9 rather, and here's where you got to stay with me because this gets a little dense in, at the end of verse 8 and verse 9. And so just stay with me here and, and, and we're going to get this, all right? Verse 9, he, he, he speaks of the archangel Michael. Now, he's going to pull out a, a reference from a, a book that's not in the Bible called The Assumption of Moses. He's going to give us a story and he's making a point and we're going to do our best to get our head around it, though it sounds difficult for us. Verse 9, he says this, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. All right, so you say, what? What was that? What's happening? All right, well, he's quoting from this book outside of the Bible, which doesn't mean that that book should be in the Bible and doesn't mean we should get rid of it because it's not the Bible and we, we should cross it out. But he's saying this book, which would have been common, commonly known to his hearers, has this story where Michael is contending with the devil for the body of Moses. And the devil appears to be slandering Moses, accusing Moses, telling God and Michael, why Moses was, was guilty. And it says here that Michael, in speaking to the devil, did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said to him, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, so the idea here is, is even how we, the, Michael is speaking to the devil is, is measured. He's not speaking as one who has authority. He is speaking as one who is under authority. So this, this idea of blaspheming angels or the devil, he, he is saying we, we under, have to understand who we are. We have a master. We have a king. He does the speaking. And so he says he didn't pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you, which is a quote from Zechariah, where there's a similar situation. Similar situation when Satan brings Joshua, the high priest, before the angel of the Lord, and Satan is accusing this man, Joshua, who is a high priest of the Lord, as a sinner. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen this brand plucked from the fire. Okay. So what's all the point? Say, Pastor, I have no idea what you just said the last three minutes. Well, that's all right. Sometimes the Bible's a little difficult, and sometimes pastor's not always up to handling it as clearly as I would like. The point is this. These ones who, at the end of verse 8, reject authority are also the ones who feel very comfortable blaspheming glorious ones, speaking to Satan, speaking to spiritual forces in the heavenly places. He's saying, that's not our job, believers. Let the Lord rebuke Satan, for he is the master, he is the king. But these people, he continues in verse 10, blaspheme all they do not understand. He's saying they don't even understand what's going on, but they have big talk, big language about things that they don't even know what's going on. So the Bible references multiple places where Michael is, is fighting a, a battle in the heavenly places. And, and, and Jude is saying, these people, they don't even understand all that's going on. We're not seeing the whole picture. But his point is, these people want to step into this and, and say all these big things. He said, no, that's not for us to do. And now he turns from something that they don't understand to something they do in verse 10. And get this. Because this is quite a turn that he makes. These certain people, these people, now again here in verse 10, these people, they blaspheme all they do not understand and they are destroyed 
by all they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Okay, so he says they're talking about things they don't understand, but then they're destroyed by things that they understand instinctively. And now, come back with me into the text here and see this, because this is significant. This is powerful. Verse 10. These people, again, he's giving us an anatomy of these people. And these people, these false teachers, these perverters of the grace of God, these deniers of our Master and Lord, they are in the end destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Okay, what does that mean? Have you ever had a pet? At our house, we decided to break down to the whims of our little girls and get bunnies. Bunnies need a lot of cleanup. Bunnies are cute and cuddly. Bunnies don't attack you. They're a lot of good qualities. But bunnies are unreasoning animals. And they do certain things by instinct. They don't have to be taught. And in fact, they are hard to restrain. It's exactly what he's talking about here. When he talks about those who understand things instinctively, like unreasoning animals, you say, Pastor, it seems a little crude. What are you talking about? What, what he's describing here is the difference between a man or woman who is controlled by the Spirit of God and given the spirit of self-control that God gives his people and people who are enslaved to sin and cannot conquer but instead are led away by their sin like unreasoning animals. So you see, we talked about this a little bit last week, but our culture will say to us about sexual immorality in its different forms, be it heterosexual or homosexual, just got to go with it. There's no power to stop it. We can't teach people to control it. Is that right or wrong? little of both, right? But the Bible says that left to ourselves, we become like unreasoning animals, just acting on instinct. So we see a people living according to an animal instinct, an animal desire. And he said, these people who are to be teachers are themselves understanding instinctively like unreasoning animals, this kind of behavior that will, in fact, destroy them. So under the cover of the Christian veneer, under the cover of a big ministry, there is underneath it the behavior of unreasoning animals that will destroy them. They don't understand those whom they blaspheme. What do they understand? They understand this. They understand this kind of deadly, sinful behavior. Second Peter says it like this. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So who are these people? There are those who are relying on dreams. There are those who defile the flesh, their own and others. There are those who reject authority. There are those who blaspheme and slander. And they are, destroy, they are those who are destroyed by what they understand instinctively. And what's our call? Loved ones, our call is to contend for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, to become aware of who these people are. Now, the, the easy thing is to just check out right now and say, oh, I'll let somebody else fight this. I don't need to worry about this. This will never affect me. 
never affect my children, never affect anybody I know or love. No one will ever be swept away or harmed or destroyed by these people. We'll let the pastors take care of it. We don't need to worry about this. Oh, friends, Jude wanted to write a happier letter, but he says we must together earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered. We must be trained to know how to face these people. We must be trained by the Word of God to recognize such. And now he gives three examples. Last week he gave three examples from the Old Testament. Now he's going to give three more examples from the Old Testament, which is instructive for us that Jude knew the book. And we must know the book. And when you read through Jude the first couple of times, he's going to hit you with references where you go, what are you talking about? I don't know that story. What is that story? What do you do with that? You go learn the story, right? We told the children one of the stories this morning, if you're like, what a weird children's message. <laughs> hey, we've got to know the book, right? And God is big. We've got to know his book. We've got to know these stories that he tells. And so three examples from the Old Testament they are going to help us understand who are these people. Look at them in verse 11. All three examples are right there in verse 11. Woe to them. Who's the them? These people. These people. They. Certain people. Woe to them for they, first example, they walked in the way of Cain. Who is Cain? Well, Cain in the early church was referred to as the the proto-false teacher. That is, a, a forerunner of other false teachers. Cain, we know, gave a, an unworthy offering to God, and then so upset was he that God favored his brother and not him that he killed his brother. But it was said in the early church, here was the thought of Cain, that Cain was a man who did not believe what was true about God. So an old statement about Cain was, Cain believed there is no judgment, no judge, no reward to come, no reward will be given to the righteous, and no destruction of the wicked. You see, when Hebrews 11 speaks of Abel, it says that Abel believed, Abel believed, Abel believed, which is in contrast to Cain. And these people here, they have walked in the way of Cain. They've walked in the way of Cain. It's the way of unbelief. That's example number one. Example number two. Do you know this one? Do you know this name? Do you know this story? He continues there in verse 11. These people abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Again, you might say, I don't, I don't know what that is. Here are the words. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Okay? Balaam was a prophet in the book of Numbers who was all about the Benjamins. Not sure they had Benjamins wandering through the wilderness. You know what they had? They had gold, silver earrings, other things. But Balaam wanted to get paid. And so an enemy of God's people came to Balaam, knew Balaam was a prophet, and said, Balaam, come, I'll pay you a lot of money. You curse God's people. Balaam comes, says, you know what? I can only say what God tells me to say. So, but he, he goes, he takes the money, says, God, what should I say? God gives him a blessing instead of a curse. King says, this is ridiculous. Come on, I paid you a lot of money, paying you to curse these people. So he says, all right, well, I'll ask God again. He asks God again. Second time, God gives him only a blessing. Well, Balaam's given over. He wants money. So a third time, he's called to come and curse God's people. He's on his way, riding his donkey, when his donkey stops. Do you know this story? In a little narrow way, the donkey just lays down and Balaam starts beating his donkey. Come on, donkey, let's go. And then one of these fantastical stories, true story in the Bible, 
the donkey speaks and says to Balaam, what are you doing? Have I ever been an unfaithful donkey to you? To which Balaam replied, uh... And then Balaam's eyes are opened and he sees before him the figure that appears so often in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord with his drawn sword who said to Balaam, Balaam, if your donkey wouldn't have stopped, I would have killed you. Who is that angel of the Lord? We know it is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ who saves his people and destroys his enemies. And he stood there before Balaam. He was angry at Balaam, but he didn't destroy him that day. And so Balaam keeps going in his way. Again, God won't let him curse the people. But then we read on in the story, and we see Balaam finally did his deed. He couldn't curse the people, so instead he went to the people of God's enemies, and he said, let me tell you how to destroy them. Get all your women and go get all their men, and lead them off into the false worship of false gods. And they did. And they did. And then we read of God coming down with a plague and destroying his people because of that plague. Remember last week when we read in verse 5? If you weren't here, go back up to verse 5. Friend, if you are here and you yawn when you hear the name of Jesus... If you're here and you think Jesus is just a cuddly teddy bear of a guy, you don't know the Jesus of the Bible. Because verse 5 told us last week, it was Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, and afterwards it was Jesus who destroyed those who did not believe. And in that plague, tens of thousands were killed because they followed the way of Balaam. They fell into Balaam's heir. And these people, verse 11, have walked in the way of Cain and they have abandoned themselves for gain to Balaam's heir. And so when we look at these people, we see churches led astray this way and that way for the cause of money. Whether it's a prosperity church or just a church that says, we got to get in line with culture. Oh, friends, all around us are churches going the way of Balaam's heir. And then there is a third example. Those that perished in Korah's rebellion, which is the story talked about with the kids. Korah, a couple of his friends, bring together a group of 250 people and say, Moses, what are you doing leading, being God's spokesman? Who set you apart? Give all this, these promises, promised land, promised land, promised land. None of it's come true. We're standing against you. We oppose you. And the Word of God says that they weren't standing against Moses. They were standing against God. They're grumbling. They're murmuring. They're, we don't believe your promises anymore, God. And we don't like your guy, Moses. That's what led God to do such a drastic thing as he did that day. To say, this is a big deal. Grumbling, murmuring despising the authority of God and his people is a big deal. And these people walk in this way. They walk in the way of Cain. They forsake themselves the gain of Balaam's heir, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. Three more examples that are powerful, significant. I think of a, a man I used to serve with. Think about despising authority, standing up. 39 elders told this man, you're wrong. You're in sin. His response? No. You all are wrong. And I'm right. Say, what does this look like? To stand up against the authority God puts in your life? That's what it looks like. I think of another situation with a pastor. Group of men who loved him right around him saying, brother, here is your sin. No, 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 no. I'm good. I'm fine. Y'all are wrong. You think, does this really happen? It happens all the time. All the time. Sin is so deceitful. And so we must see, we must recognize what these people are, and we must recognize any spirit like this that would come up 
in our own hearts or in our church, we must recognize what does a creep look like and what is the spirit of these people, these creeps. Because even here at Jubilee, not that we are some better than others church, just a church even here where it feels so much like home to so many, fierce wolves will arise. Been on the phone for multiple hours in the last couple of weeks with a dear friend who planted a wonderful church, has been a faithful pastor, and had men right in his church rise up and start lying about him, slandering him. The most audacious lies. They were small group leaders. You think, how does this happen? But it happens dividing, rebelling, revolting. And sometimes it happens in the most happy ways. I just want a better church. I just want us to be more effective. I just want whatever the guys. This is the spirit that that comes up again and again and again. Does it mean the pastor's house right? Absolutely not. That's the whole point. But we respect authority together. Even the pastors and elders respecting one another's authority. No one being the loudmouth who gets it right all the time. Well, he continues in verse 12. Six pictures, and we only have time just to, to touch on them. Each one you could think about more at lunchtime. What are the implications of each of these? Because each one of these is a really loaded picture with all kinds of implications that we don't have time to draw out. But verse 12 Uh, six pictures of what these people look like. Picture number one, these are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. So think of a hidden reef. A boat is going along, thinks it's not got an issue, and suddenly, boom, it hits a hidden reef. These people are hidden in the damage that they do. They're unnoticed until, boom, there is a hole in the boat. Picture number two, they are shepherds feeding themselves. Ezekiel 34 talks about this kind of shepherd. They aren't feeding the flock. They are feeding themselves. They are trying to get paid. They are trying to feather their own nest. They aren't shepherds who are giving themselves to feeding God's people. They stand up and talk, but they don't feed. Picture three, they are waterless clouds swept along by winds. Clouds are supposed to dump water. They're supposed to water the land, right? And these people, they aren't clouds with water. They are waterless clouds. They provide no refreshment, no gospel nourishment. Picture number four, they are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. I just got to stop and say, listen, Jude, you are just getting out of hand, right? Like the point you're making, you keep making the point and 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 the point. Why is Jude talking like this? This is someone who has been seriously affected by these people, right? You ever talk to someone where they are really passionate about something because something happened to them? It is very clear here, Jude has seen people he knows and loves get wrecked by these people. So just as we pause here and think about this, he's not just talking. He feels the weight of how serious this is. Picture number four, I was saying, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. I mean, all kinds of pictures there. Jesus said the tree that bears no fruit will be cut down, cast into the fire, and that's who these are. These are trees that when you go to, as Pastor Dan says all the time, eat the fruit of their lives, you say, there ain't nothing good here. And so when you're trying to figure out who are these people, one of the tests we always say, when, when, when you leave from this place, Jubilee, and go to another church, we always say, go taste the fruit of the church where you're going. Go taste the fruit of the leaders of that church. And hopefully it is the fruit of the Spirit. It is love. It is joy. It is peace. It is patience. It is a passion for Jesus, a passion for His Word. But these people, they're fruitless. They're twice dead, uprooted. Picture five, they are wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. All kinds of chaos happening. 
and their own shame being thrown up this way and that. And they are finally, sixth picture, wandering stars. It says that the, 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 the people of God, the people who are filled with faith in the last day will shine like stars. No, that's not who these people are. These people are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So if Jesus is the master and Jesus is the king and these people are so clearly in opposition to them, what is going to happen? Glad you asked. Verse 14 and 15. Again, won't give it as much time as we should, but just lock in here with me for a few minutes on 14 and 15 and look for the word ungodly and look for the word all. In fact, you might want to mark the word ungodly and the word all because they happen over and over and over again in 14 and 15. So Jude says this, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord comes with tens thousands of his holy ones. And you say, where in the Bible did Enoch say that? Not in the Bible. It's from a book called the Book of Enoch, which again was extra biblical literature. He's drawn it in just like Paul quotes the prophets, others quote other things. He's quoting something from outside the Bible, but it's it's part of the Bible now here in Jude. He says it's about these people that Enoch said the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, and he comes to do what? To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that they that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This guy likes repetition. Do you, get the, do you get the point here? The Lord is coming, and he will execute judgment on all the ungodly for all the ungodly things they did in such an ungodly way. He sees these leaders, and he sees when you pull back the, the curtains, when you pull back the veneer, these people are living in an ungodly way. They're doing things in an ungodly way, and Jesus will deal with all of it. He will execute judgment on all of it whether it's Korah and his rebellion, whether it's Balaam, or whether it's these people alive, living, active right now. But he's going to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of all their deeds. Now that word convict is not just he's going to bring them an awareness of their sin, but Jesus, like a judge, will lay out all of the evidence against them and show them their sin where they will have no answer. And so as we hear about Jesus as judge right here, this is just a reminder for us that there is no better place in the entire universe to be than under the protective covering of Jesus' blood and righteousness. Because I want to tell you, friends, there is no place you want to be less than standing before the omniscient Savior creator of the universe as he unloads all the ungodly things you've ever done perfectly. No excuses, no appeals, no lost evidence, no corruption. And that's what he will do here for all of these and oh, if we know ourselves to be sinners, we are fleeing ungodliness and saying, no, Jesus, I want to walk with you. I want to walk with you. And what this means is to follow Jesus is to leave ungodliness. What this means is that despising authority is not just about people, but it's despising his authority, his authority over our sexuality, over our morality, over our honesty, over our finances. And these people say, Jesus, ah, forget it. You're, you're just a guy. You're just an idea. That's just Sunday stuff. I'll do whatever I want. I want to live in an ungodly way. I'm going to do that. I'm going to use my computer in an ungodly way. I'm going to use my finances in an ungodly way. I'm going to use my mouth in an ungodly way. And so you see leaders doing that. And he says, no, that's not what we are to be. Jubilee, we must flee 
all of these forms of ungodliness and pray, God, bring the fruit of the Spirit in my life and get rid of the fruit of the flesh because these have lives marked by the fruit of the flesh. We must not understand Jesus. He is our master, and he is our king, and he saves those who are his, and he destroys every one of his enemies. And deceivers want to tell us, oh, Jesus, just a nice guy, the nicest of guys, great guy, what a guy. Not the Jesus of the Bible. Not the Jesus of the Bible. That story of Korah's rebellion, it says that fire came up from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering incense. You see, it's by Jesus that all things were created, and it's for Jesus that all things were created. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authorities, all things were created by him and for him, and that includes your life. And that includes these people. We're going to bring glory to him either in being saved by his mercy or being destroyed by his mercy justice. Last verse. These people, verse 16. You're doing great. This is a heavy text, I realize. Last verse. These people, they are grumblers. Think of those in the Old Testament. God's not really faithful. He's not really providing. He's not fulfilling His promises. This is ridiculous. These are malcontents. Oh, manna, again, can't believe it. Now you hear this describing these people, but you've got to ask yourself, is there a spirit in my heart that becomes this grumbling, malcontent? Oh, grass is greener over there. I bet the other people who have been Sunday dinner this afternoon, I bet it's a better meal than ours. It starts small. It gets bigger. And these people are grumblers. They are malcontents, never content, never content, never content. They are following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters. And they show favoritism to gain advantage. They give gifts to get advantage. See this in the church. Using flattery to get a position, to get noticed that all of these things are part of the blueprint of these people. Jubilee, we must be aware. We must understand. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians that helps us understand these things. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers passed through the sea. They drank from the spiritual rock that was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased They were overthrown in the wilderness. And these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He continues and says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. We must not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the capital D, destroyer. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, what's the point of all of this? Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If you leave today and think, I'm good, take heed lest you fall. For no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Jubilee, who are we if we are God's people? We are called. We are beloved. We are kept and we are called to fight. That's what he's saying. Don't give in to temptation. Don't say, I can't do this. I'm like an unreasoning animal just following instinct. I can't fight. He said, no, fight. You've been given the Spirit. Fight. He is Lord, and so we deny immorality. He is Lord. We accept his authority over our lives. We don't just do whatever we want. And this is a very un-American idea. 
We're rebels in America. We're standing up to authority. We resist. No, he says, Christ is our master and his way is best. Not a list of do's and don'ts, but saying, Jesus is Lord. I want him to be Lord of my life. I want him to change me. I want him to transform me. I want every part of my life to be his, live for him, honoring him putting ungodliness aside. And so we do life together, confessing sin in missional life groups, talking on the phone, crying with one another, saying, friend, help me. Let me help you walk in this way. But these people will come. They're going to seek to disrupt. They're going to seek to corrupt. They're going to seek to interrupt. They're going to discourage and disarm and disorient. And what do we do with this? We'll go ahead and get a little sneak peek on next week. Down to verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus that leads to eternal life. We are kept. He's keeping us and he says, loved ones, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves there. He's keeping you. You keep yourselves. He's building you. Build yourselves up in the most holy faith. He's praying for you. You pray in the Holy Spirit. And all of this leads to eternal life. So Jubilee, there's a call here at the end for us individually, but there's a call for us as a church. So hear verse 20 and 21 again as a church. But you, Jubilee, beloved, building up all of yourselves in our most holy faith and praying together in the Holy Spirit, keep one another in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads us to eternal life together. Certain people are going to come. Waves are going to come. Doctrines are going to come. Jubilee, by God's grace, I pray that he makes us steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. During World War II in London, Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching, and while he was preaching, some Sundays, the bombs were going off in London. And it was said that on one particular Sunday, a bomb went off nearby, and the dust was dropping down from the ceiling, and he just kept preaching. And the dust landed down on him. He just kept going. Finally, one of his assistants got up and brushed the dust off of him, and he continued preaching the gospel. Jubilee, may it be so for us that come what may, bombs or dust or these people, we press on following the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.